my son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Dealing with mess can feel like an impossible task. It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess, whether it be that chair that collects all your clothes or the monstrous pile under your bed. That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage, and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess, so IKEA makes storage affordable. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. She was so close to dying, she looked like a wet washcloth. I said, leave her with me. It'll soon be time for her to be flying, and we'll manage the release from my backyard here. But uh, things happened that were unexpected, that caused a delay in that process. That's Carl Safina. And the unexpected delays to his releasing that baby owl turned into a remarkable and intimate relationship. His new book, Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe, is a lyrical description of how the COVID lockdown nurtured that relationship. But the book is more than that. Alfie's story is also an opportunity for Carl to explore Western culture's flawed relationship with the rest of nature. Carl, it's great to see you again. It's so great to see you, Alan. Thank you. Last time you were here, we we had a wonderful talk about your previous book where you talked about the feelings and the thinking capacities of other animals. That's right. Mm -hmm. And now I get the impression that this book called Alfie and Me is about an experience that maybe went deeper than any other one you've had with an animal. Is that true? I think that is true. I I think that's true. Uh, Even deeper than your experience with your dogs and your chickens. Well, I'm not sure about the dogs. I mean, the dogs are really family members. (laughs) Yeah, right. But as far as wild animals and as far as bringing me into nature even deeper, um, I mean, I used to study wild birds. I used to train hawks. I, I have a, a lot of experience and and many fond memories of days out in the wild with, with animals, the seabirds I studied in their breeding colonies and things like that. But to get to know one individual wild animal who is actually free living and uh, and yet visits constantly, and you know, we have this history together, uh, and then goes and becomes fully capacitated as as she is supposed to be as a member of her species with getting a wild mate raising wild young ones uh and and yet letting me observe all of that at point blank range so very very special really how did you meet alfie 
Well, someone found a, a baby screech owl. That's what Alfie is, a screech owl. Someone found a baby screech owl near death on his lawn, and he called a wildlife rehabilitator. I used to be a wildlife rehabilitator for about 20 years. And, um, and so the, the, the rehabber that he called went and got this little baby bird, um, stabilized the bird, and gave me a ring saying, uh, among other things, do you know what kind of bird this is? Because it's really a weird looking little thing. Oh, how, did, how does it look? She was a weird looking little thing. Well, she was, she was so close to dying. She looked like a wet washcloth in the, in the text message that I saw of her at first. Her eyes were still closed. She was weeks away from fledging. So probably something like a crow um, found the nest and was raiding it and taking the babies out and dropped this one on the lawn. That's, that's my best guess about what happened. Uh, and then the, the wildlife rehabber, in this case, was also our house sitter and pet sitter when we went away. And then she had to go to do a fellowship overseas. And I said, you know, I've, I've taken care of owls before. Um, leave her with me. Well, we didn't know it was a female, but we were calling the owl her. And I said, I said leave her with me. Uh, it, it'll soon be time for her to be flying and we'll manage the release from my, from my backyard here. But uh, th things happened that were unexpected that caused a delay in that process. Your expectation was to make her well and then release her. But what got in the way of that? Yeah, well, you know, we say release. It's, not, it's more like just letting her do her, her normal thing of starting to fly little distances and, and just it, the, the basic idea of never putting her in a cage, uh. letting her call her own shots. What got in the way of that is that the, the feathers at the, at the tip of her wing, the part that corresponds to our hand, the longest feathers, they grew in beautifully. But all the feathers from here and from here did not come in at all. So she, she could flap, but she had no lift. And when it was time for her to fly, she couldn't fly. So we had to wait through a molt. Her feathers came in in the meantime. They, they molted properly. They came in again. And at that time, we did a little flight training and a little hunting training. And, How do you do that? Uh, well, mostly with um, providing them opportunities to catch food. They're small owls. They look like a miniature version of sort of the typical owl you would imagine. They have the little feather tufts on their ears, but they are small. If they're on a branch, the top of their head from their feet is only about five inches. I had a fake mouse that I used to pull on a string and I had a little piece of food attached to it. So, you know, that instinct to chase and pounce was well reinforced in a, in a uh, semi-naturalistic way. And the other thing was I would catch crickets and let her, let her catch the crickets. I would toss the crickets out for her and, and let her catch them. And then at one point, she just decided that the view around the yard was um, a little too interesting. And instead of coming directly to me, she went up in a tree. And to make a longer story a little shorter, that was the beginning of her freedom, which was now several years ago. Um, I was always afraid that, sh that having suddenly acquired the ability to fly, she would just bolt 
and perhaps starve without me being able to back her up if she was hungry. Maybe she would just go a long distance, not know where she was. Uh, but I underestimated her. She did, she did disappear for about a week. She came back. When she came back, she was not thin. She was fine. And she just decided our backyard was her home, and it remains her home to this day. Sounds like, as you tell the story in the book, her arrival was followed not long after by COVID, which gave you extra time to observe her and interact with her. Yeah, COVID corresponded with her first year of being free. I had the, the unique opportunity and the incredible timing of, of having everything on my calendar disappear because of COVID and having really nothing better to do than to sit in the yard watching owls. So you were there to watch the beginning of the romance with her mate. Yeah. Well, what was that like? How did that That progress? was so incredibly fascinating because what, what you learn when you learn ornithology is that the breeding season has three phases. There's courtship, then there's incubation, and then there is fledging. And uh, or maybe you could, uh, chick rearing and then fledging, maybe four phases. But um, courtship was not straightforward in this case. At at first, I couldn't tell if they were adversarial or if they were interested in um, in you know getting together. And then I started to see them perching near each other, but still a little bit unconvinced, a a, a little skeptical. And then I started to see him feeding her at sunset every night. He would appear. I don't know where he was spending the day. I knew where she was spending the day. She was sleeping in a bunch of ivy uh, up, up on a maple tree. And we could usually spot her in there. But they would both come out. They'd call for each other. And the first thing he would do is he would go catch Something. And the fastest thing he could usually catch was to find a moth on a tree trunk. <laughs> so he'd take her out to dinner. He would take her out to dinner. She would she would accept it. And I mean the parallels are are real and they're and they're so <laughs> they're both incredibly interesting and totally delightful. And you know, and then they started to have sex. And and this was weeks weeks before she laid an egg and they started to have sex a lot. And it was, it was mostly performing a bonding function. It was obviously something they started to really want to do. At first, at first that was tentative. And then they got really good at it. And, uh, you know, they, they would meet and, and quickly go at it. But at that time, he was not really fertilizing her because she was not producing eggs. They decided to nest in a in a box uh, that I you know there there are nest boxes you can build that have all the proportions. In this case, a, a neighbor of mine built a screech owl nest box. I put it right outside my writing studio, literally on the other side of the wall from my desk where I write. Then the period of time came where she did lay a clutch of eggs, and after she started incubating, the copulating stopped. Then it turned into a different phase where she just stayed in the box, uh, except to come out for about two minutes at sunset and at dawn. She'd go take a drink. 
she'd go right in the box. He would deliver food and he would go sleep somewhere. I never found out where he slept, but he, he was very evident. We saw him every day. And then the chicks started hatching. She started to appear more, come out more. And it, it became, you know, it wasn't a honeymoon anymore. Now it was a working family. And as the chicks started growing, he went into overdrive as a hunter. If you had asked me do owls hunt in the middle of the day, uh, screech owls, I would say, no, they, they don't hunt in the middle of the day. Well, he was hunting in the middle of the day to get enough food for those chicks when they were, when they were at their fastest period of growth. If you would have asked me, do they ever hunt things like chipmunks? I would say definitely not. Screech owls never catch chipmunks. Well, he was bringing chipmunks to the nest. So <laughs> I saw these things that were really amazing, you know, and it was a really hardworking, he was a really hardworking husband, I have to say, and a very, very competent hunter. Uh, he, was, he was not too afraid of me. He sort of took his cue from her you know, like, you're not afraid of this being over here? And, and you know, she would be like, what do you mean? Uh, and <laughs> Meeting the in-laws. <laughs> right, right, meeting the in-laws. Uh, so uh, he seemed to take his cues from her about just calming down in our presence. He was, he was, not, he was not an, uh, an owl that we could walk right up to. She was. But, um, you know, he wouldn't startle or bolt or be alarmed. He he'd be okay and we could watch him do his normal stuff. He would he'd go he would do his normal owl life with us watching from, you know, maybe 30 feet away or something like that. Now, what happened after the eggs hatched and the uh, owlets, you could call them owlets? Yeah, that's a word. They they left the nest and then they hung around in the yard for about 3 weeks. The, they were they would normally spend all day uh, in a particular small group of, of young maples. I could almost always just go out and look up and find them quickly. And um, the parents continued to take care of them and they would follow the parents around. You'd see them uh, as night fell. Everybody would get active. The, the parents would be around. They'd be calling. The, the father would have food. Alfie would have food. They'd feed the babies. This went on for about three weeks. And then the babies were, you know, good enough flyers that they have a natural impulse to leave the parental territory and, you know, try to start their own lives. What effect did that have on Alfie and her mate? What, what, what name did you give her mate? He, he was called Plus One. <laughs> so they split up after that or did they start delving into new, uh, a new relationship? Both of them got very scarce for a few weeks, and then uh, I didn't see him anymore. I don't know if he was just coming and going, but the, you know, because they weren't courting, they weren't hanging around. I really don't know. She she came back in the early fall. I I predicted that when it got cold out, or at least too chilly for all the crickets and the katydids and things like that, that. She'd come around again and, and make herself apparent, and she and she did. She became obvious again. I never saw him until the next breeding season. Hmm. Uh, I I thought that he must have gotten killed, but then suddenly, um, 
late late the next winter, early early the next spring, right around the end of March, he showed up and there was no courtship, no preliminaries. The first time I saw them, they were just side by side on a branch. It's possible that they had been corresponding with each other all winter and I and I just didn't know it because they weren't really interacting a lot. I don't know. I don't really know what happened, but he came back. He was there for a second year and they raised three more that second year. And the uh, little babies, I understand you couldn't tell them apart. Right. So you gave them all a collective name. Right. My wife, Patricia, was part of all of this. And I said to her, you know, I, I, th- I think we should name the babies, but I can't tell them apart. <laughs> and she said, well, we'll just give them all a name. She said, why don't we call them the who? So that's what we call them. We call, we call them the who. In a way, it is because of the music they made, right? Sure. They, they, they make that right. sound. They don't ordinarily, I understand from your book, screech owls don't go hoo hoo. No, they don't, they don't hoot like that. Um, and they almost never screech. They have two main calls. One is a trill, and uh, it's kind of like a like a whistly, breathy trill. And the other is a whinny. That's it. Sounds like a little horse is up in a tree whinnying. It's uh, it's re- it's really a nice sounding call. Then they have contact calls, which are a little different. It's just single notes, and it's, it's kind of like ooh ooh. When, they're, when they really just want to know, where, where are you exactly? And the other one will usually answer, I'm over here. Now, would Alfie do that with you if she wanted your attention? No, only, only with them. When she wants our attention, she usually comes and whinnies. And another mm. interesting thing about it is if she, if she doesn't know where we are, if we're in the house, let's say, um, or if she's looking for her mate and doesn't know where he is, if she's whinnying, or trilling at that point, it'll be loud. But if we're right there, it's like a little whisper. It's just, I see you, I'm here, I'm here, you're there, we're together, we're good. Uh, But if she doesn't know, it's broadcast. So the meanings of calls, this is true for a lot of animals, the meanings change with the context. As it, it could be the same call, but it's a different volume and it's a different context. It means something a little different. It could uh. mean, where are you? Or it could mean, I see that you're right here and we're together. When we come back from our break, Carl Safina tells me how his experience with Alfie's growing family led him to re-examine Western culture's estrangement from the rest of nature. And he has an important update to his book. Alfie's tale is far from over. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience to strengthen the relationship between science and society and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. 
This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Carl Safina and his years-long relationship with Alfie the Owl. This seems to have really made a deep impact on you in two ways. Tell, tell me if I'm right about this. One is that you got an even deeper understanding of your relationship to other animals. That's true. And the other is that I got the impression that you got a deeper understanding of your relationship to other people as well. Well, um, the first one is definitely true. Um, what I gained, I think, mostly was a, a better understanding about how other people see the human place in the world and how other people think of themselves or, or, or other cultures think of themselves at, in relation to the wider world and to other, other species, other beings on the planet, life in general. That's what I'm trying to drive at. Yeah, very much so. The idea that Eastern cultures... Right. Indigenous cultures around the world, South, South Asian cultures, East Asian cultures and religions and philosophies, yeah. They um, recognize a, a community, not only with people and other animals, but the community as a force on them. Yes, my, it, it, the, the sense in, in almost all other cultures is one of much more of seeing the unity in the diversity of the world, not the divisions in the diversity of the world. It's much more um, a relational sense than it is a transactional sense of life and interaction. And um, the Western view is a real outlier compared to the, the other three, to, to indigenous and um, South and East Asian cultures. So I, I, I kind of see that there are four major realms, those three and, and the Western view. The Western view is really one where um, people sense a, a duality between humans and nature or, um, or, or God and, and the physical world. Um, the divisions are what's emphasized, transaction rather than relationship is emphasized, and, and it has made all, literally all the difference in the world. I'm interested in your notion that the Western preoccupation with individualism and winning makes us less, in a way, less wealthy, if you don't count wealth only by possessions. Sure. The idea is that in many ways in our society, in, uh, you know, best exemplified by team sports and business, um, you win by making others lose hmm. rather than the sense that exists in, in many other cultures that you win by contributing to your community. And that contributing to your community enlarges your own life. There's not, there's not a sense that you need to get something before someone else gets it. There's more of a sense that you need to share what you have because that increases the well-being of everybody. 
Yeah, I was struck by your description of a Native American who was asked something like, is it hard to balance your individuality against your allegiance to the community? And he couldn't understand the question. Yeah, that, that, was, a, that was a woman who was writing that. She, she said, I didn't even understand the question uh, at first. I had to think really hard about what this person was asking me. I didn't, I didn't understand. Because to them, uh, to her and to, to them in, in her culture, you, you express your individuality by helping take care of the community as, as best you can, in the ways you can. That is what makes you an individual, not, not our sense of rugged individualism where, where separating yourself, calling attention to yourself, um, a, a, achieving more, winning, beating the opponent is how you um, express and are rewarded for being an individual in our culture. At the end of the book, Alfie had returned, and so had Plus One. They raised two broods. Yeah, so the book ends right at the extreme beginning of the next season. Actually, that's really just, um, that's really just in the epilogue that, you know, he was gone, I, I thought he died, and then suddenly he returned. And that's, that's the end of the book. In 2022, he did not come back. And she called and called and called, and there was no mate for her in 2022. It, it, was, it was painful to observe. It was heartrending to watch. And I probably also loaded it a little bit with my own projected sense of what it meant because she laid four eggs. They were not fertile. And she sat on them longer than she would have if they had hatched. Mm. And I just thought she's, she's keeping the faith in a world that has broken its promise. That, that, that is the part where I felt like, you know, are you projecting at this point? <laughs> you know, is this, is this some of your own disappointment that, yeah. you, that you're seeing, yeah. you know, uh, her breeding season as a metaphor for that? But she stayed a long time. And then eventually she abandoned the clutch and, uh, and there were no babies in, in 2022. But now, since you finished the book, in, there's In no this news. year, um, I was looking and looking. She was calling and calling in late winter, got to be January, February. I thought there better be a male in February. It was getting a little tight here. Got to be mid-March, no mail, and then suddenly one night I heard a call that sounded like that was not her voice. the 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 uh, The voice was lower pitched, and then I saw an owl. The owl was not relaxed about me being there. And I thought, okay, great. There's a new owl. I'm going right in the house. I don't want to. I don't want to do anything <laughs> to put him off. And then a little while after that. I saw them together only after dark, very different from her first mate. He would show up at sunset. I could easily watch what they were doing. He was really, really um, elusive. And I only saw them after dark. I, I'd, I'd have to look out through the darkened window of the kitchen. I'd shut the lights off. 
There was one particular tree I'd see them hanging out in. I saw that he was bringing her some food. It all looked really good. And then I saw them um, trying to, I say trying, I, I saw them copulate. And I say trying because he looked like he had no idea what to do. He, he looked completely incompetent. And I, and I was thinking, oh, geez, he, maybe he's a young bird and maybe he, maybe, you know, maybe she won't lay fertile eggs this year if he even sticks around because I was, I was not seeing him often for days at a time. But sure enough, she, she laid five eggs, four of them hatched, and he was not only a really good provider, but he was very aggressive about being protective about the chicks. Plus one really didn't care if I was there. Um, he did not like me being there. He would alarm. He would try to drive me off. And, you know, owls, they make absolutely no sound when they fly. You do not hear them. If Alfie flies right past my face, I obviously I see her. I don't hear anything. And he came at me one time. No warning. He hit me right in the side of the head. It was very startling. I really got, I got rattled. I have they, to say they have pretty sharp claws, don't they? Yeah. He yes. He he seemed to have hit me with his feet balled up because I didn't get scratched, and they do. Ha they have very sharp claws, and I would have I would have had little rake marks if his feet were open. But I, I think he I think he punched me in the in the sort temple. Of a warning. And it's a good thing that those are small owls and not, uh, you know, not the size of great horned owls or something wow. much bigger. So this, uh, this new guy's name is Jack? Yes, his name is Jack. We named him after my former editor, Jack McRae. And um, it's a way of keeping Jack with us. So we, so we named her new mate Jack. But I want to tell you one thing about her eggs hatching this year. When it got close to the time when I thought they should hatch, there were a couple of nights, I don't know, I was busy doing something. I couldn't get up on a ladder and, and get to the nest at the right time. I wanted to wait for Alfie to move out of the nest, go get her drink, quickly scurry up the ladder, check the eggs, come down before she sees me there. Because I, I didn't want her to feel like the security of the nest was violated, even by me. It, it turned out she couldn't care less. But I didn't know that at the time. Anyway, right around the time they should hatch, I picked up an egg. And as I was bringing it out, I, I had a flashlight. I was going to shine the flashlight through to see how developed it was. As I was bringing it out of the nest, I heard it talking to me. And I, I ran my thumb over it. And I realized, wow, this, this egg is chipping. It's, it doesn't even have a hole in it yet. It's got a little, it's just a little break, broken chip in the shell. And this tiny chick with this new air is already joining the conversation on the planet that's been going on for tens of millions of years with, with these birds between these little babies and their parents as they're hatching. That's what many birds do. And it was just, it was such a profound, incredible feeling. So I made a little squeaky noise myself and it started talking back to me. And I just thought, unbelievable. I, I put the egg back. I didn't touch the rest of them. I scrambled down the ladder and I left. I was, I was no part of their hatching or their being raised other than those 15 seconds or so that that happened. Well, you've had an extraordinary couple of years. 
Yeah, you know, and my other books, I, I go to various continents. You know, I may go to 10 continents to to write a book. And, and this one, I, I sat in my backyard. <laughs> That's great. We're running out of time, but it's time to ask you our seven quick questions. Oh, okay. We did it the last time you were here, but now that you may have... Are they different questions or the no, same? No, they're the same, probably the same questions. First one, of all the things you could understand, what do you wish you really understood? Well, I'll tell you. My, well, my answer to that question is, I understand that all life is one. I, I understand that, you know, f physics and chemistry and biology all show that our material selves are partly an illusion, that we're constantly cycling all the molecules and atoms, that we are both present now and eternal, that we are all connected in history and in the present. I, I know that. I feel it a bit. But once, many years ago, when I was in my 20s, I, I used to meditate. And once while I was meditating, there suddenly the strangest experience occurred. With an audible snap, I had no boundaries. There were, my, my sense of the perimeter of me was gone. And I really felt that everything was one thing. And, and that's the feeling I'd really like to get back, not just an intellectual understanding of the unity of life, not just a really unusual set of experiences that I have with wild animals and nature, but a really visceral sense of that. You're really making me curious. You're the second person who's had this experience that we've had on the show in the last couple of months. Really? Wow, yeah, that's interesting. Very interesting. Second question, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Usually I say that's not quite right. Um, as far as we know, or to the best of our knowledge, or something like that, because uh, sometimes it's not clear whether your facts are right, <laughs> right. Um, you may have a better understanding, but you know some of the things that we know turn out to be a little different when we know more or, or turn out to be a lot different when we know more. Next question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, gee. Uh, I, have, I have no answer to that question. I can't remember being asked... I, I can't remember a strange question being asked to me. Sounds like you're very open-minded. I guess, I guess I'm open-minded. You know, I tell my students that the, uh, the true value of an education is to let you understand how little you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Um. That's that's I'm kind of laughing because that's been a bit of a problem for me recently. Uh, I sometimes I say, let's just try to be present. <laughs> this this has this has literally been a, a recent issue when I'm when I'm out 
on my boat fishing. And the kind of fishing I do at this time of the year is we go out about 3 a.m. We travel in the dark to the fishing area, and then we look for signs that there are fish out there in the ocean. The signs have to do with looking for seabirds, looking for dolphins, looking for whales, looking for things at the surface that can betray that. And at that time, my favorite thing to talk about is nothing. I, I like to be really quiet. I like to be really present. I like to really observe. And I have a couple of friends who are constantly telling stories, talking about politics, uh, what what they had at the restaurant last week. And it's, uh, it's <laughs> I, you know, and I just say, Folks, can we please just be here for a little while? They need a bird in their life. Yeah, maybe they do. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you never met before. How do you start up a genuine conversation? Oh, I sometimes uh, ask them what they are interested in. I think mm. that's, a, that's a sort of a different twist on a question I find a little tiresome, which is what do you do? Yeah, that's sort of a transaction there. You know, they're probing for your transactional relationship with the world. And I'm, I'm more interested in what they're interested in than in what they do, because they may not be interested in what they do. What gives you confidence? In what? Well, you, it could be in yourself. It could be in the, in the species, whatever you choose. Oh, uh, well, I think in myself, it's... Um, you know, having, I guess, having lived through some things so that, you know, this too shall pass, or you know that, um, you know, this project, the last project you did looked like it was going to be a total disaster, but you figured out how to pull it together and get through it. I, I think it's, I think surviving is what um, <laughs> gives you confidence. <laughs> last question. What book changed your life? What book changed my life? Um, I, I, guess, I guess I would have to say Silent Spring mm. is the book that changed my life more. I'll say more than some of the other books that were really, really important to me when I was young. I would say that one. And then, of course, the first book I wrote changed my <laughs> yeah, life. Right. Because well, after that... I had the opportunity to write more books, and my whole career changed. Well, you're a wonderful writer, and I'm glad that that happened. Oh, thank you so much. It's been so and, great seeing you again and talking uh, with uh, you. So great. It's just great to hear your voice, Alan. It's, it's really, and it's such an honor to be with you. So thank you so much. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Carl Safina is the founder and president of the Safina Center. His many books include Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel, which we talked about on his last visit to Clear and Vivid. That was back in early 2020, just as the COVID pandemic was beginning. Alfie had settled into Carl's backyard and her flirtation with Plus One was just beginning. Alfie's story became the book Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe, published today. 
You can get a preview of the book and see some of the wonderful photographs Carl took of Alfie and her families at carlsafina.org slash Alfie dash me. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Laurel Breitman. A life full of adventure while struggling with grief led her to what she does so brilliantly and effectively today, which is to help medical professionals communicate with their colleagues and patients through the power of storytelling. If we have a healthcare system in which healthcare professionals are penalized for being vulnerable, it is very, very hard for them to admit mistakes. And that just, that is incredibly dangerous, right? If, if you're in the OR and the surgeon feels like they can't even tell the anesthesiologist that they've messed up, right? Let alone the patient afterwards. This, this is not safe. This isn't safe for anyone involved. But often, well-intentioned, incredibly trained people will make a minor mistake. And there's pressure often not to admit to it because there are professional ramifications. Laurel Breitman. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>